the Spirit of the Lord took hold of me and carried me away to a valley filled with bones. They were scattered everywhere, covering the ground and were completely dried out. Then God said to me, Tell these bones, O dry bones, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. So I spoke this message, and suddenly there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then, as I watched, muscles and skin formed over the bones. Then God said to me, Speak to the winds and say, Come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke this message, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet like a great army. Then God said, These bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old dry bones. All hope is gone. But this is what the Lord God says. Oh, my people, I'll dig up your graves and bring you out alive. I'll put my spirit in you and breathe my life into you, and you'll live. I'll pour pure water over you and scrub you clean. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. You will be my people and I'll be your God. All right. Hello, everyone in the house. Good to see you all this morning. I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here at Wilden, and uh, it's good to see you all here. Good to worship with you. I have my towel, which means you know I've been for some serious preaching. And this gets out. Last service, I was just so drenched that Mary actually made me change my shirt because she said I looked disgusting. I, you guys don't mind if I get up all sweaty, do you? I mean, come on. I'm working out. It's a workout. So it's, I can't see. What's the they, they would like it better if I came up sweaty. It's, but I, they, 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 they did give me a fan down here. So this is kind of nice. It's like, ah. So if I get too hot, I'll just kind of like, you know, go over there. So I really don't care if you guys don't like me because I've got a fan. <laughs> all right. Sorry. No, sorry. All right, so we're in the series that we're calling Long Story Short. We're looking at a n- several a number of short stories in the Bible uh, that are crucial. They're at the turning points of, of this biblical revelation. And um, we're, we're, we're looking at them to try to connect the dots to see the forest through the trees. And so more specifically, we're looking at covenant and kingdom um, and how those, get, that, that, those two themes get woven in throughout the biblical narrative. It kind of weaves it all together, and it all points towards Jesus. So we looked at the uh, covenant with Adam and Eve, and the covenant with Noah, and with Abraham, and Moses. And last week we talked about King David, uh, this God-centered, or the king-centered uh, covenant that God entered into. Uh, today we're going to look at the prophets. Um, they were well, they're, they're the next thing to come. Uh, the minor prophets, the major prophets. And I thought it would be good just to... Uh, since we're trying to connect the dots here, to back off a little bit, start by just kind of giving a framework here, a kind of a timetable to help, you know, put things in their, in their slots. 
Uh, this is a timetable, but it's, it's, it's only approximation because scholars disagree on the dating of some stuff and whatever. So it's approximation. But it will give you a framework at least. So Genesis 1 through 11, it's called primal history. It's usually referred to as primal history. It's kind of history before history. Uh, the genre of the material is such that we can't quite coordinate it with archaeology and whatever. But that's 1 through 11. sets down paradigms that the rest of the Bible follows. But the, 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 the historical part of the, 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 the narrative really begins with Abraham. And he's called uh, to, out of uh, his, his land, Hebron, to enter into Ur around 2100 B.C., give or take. All right? Uh, he's promised to have a great nation. It's going to be wonderful and it's going to be blessed and all of that. But they spend 400 years in slavery, which shows you something about God's timetable. He's not in a big hurry to do much of anything. So they're in slavery 400 years. God had to, wanted to incubate them sort of before he gave birth to them into the land of Canaan. Moses comes along around 450 B.C. and then delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they wander in the desert for 40 years or so. They enter Canaan around 1400. Those scholars really disagree on, on the dating of this. Uh, the archaeological evidence is just all over the place. Uh, that's probably the darkest period in, in biblical history because it involved genocide. Uh, but then uh, they go for, for a couple hundred years until about 1040. Uh, that's when the people of Israel, we saw last week, they want a king. Uh, they're tired of trusting an invisible king. They want a human king. And so they choose Saul because he's tall and handsome, as though tall and handsome qualified you for anything. But uh, that's what they do. It turns out to be a bad uh, a king. So David replaces him in 1000 BC, right, give or take. And this is known as kind of the glory days of Israel. And this is Israel at its peak. Israel had the most land, and its, its empire was the most extensive during this period. They had the most wealth, and uh, they were least threatened by other nations. Uh, so people from here on are going to look back to the good old days of David. And that's why they want, want to refer to Jesus as a Davidic Messiah or a Davidic king. Because they think he's going to restore Israel uh, back to its former glory days when David was king. Of course, he didn't do that, but that's what the people uh, thought he was going to do. Then Solomon takes over uh, his, his, the son of David uh, in 960 B.C. Um, and then shortly after that, in 931 B.C., the kingdom divides. Now, God had told him, you remember from last week, that if, he said, if you get a king, it's not going to go well. This is my ideal will for you. I'll give it to you if that's what you want, but it's not going to go well. But the people wanted a king. Well, here we see it's not going well. 130 years after having a king, Israel splits. And so there's now two nations. Um, there's the northern uh, nation, which is called Israel. And the southern nation then begins to be called Judah. Okay, so they're divided. But because they're divided, they're both weak. And threatened by other empires. And so the uh, northern kingdom uh, is taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. And they sort of just disappear from the face of the earth. Um, then the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And that's the last time Israel exists as a sovereign nation until 1947. Okay, so that's... Uh, that all goes down. Micah is the last book of the Old Testament. That's written around 430 B.C. And then we have this long period of silence. Things are just sort of cooking. Jesus shows up in around 7 B.C., 6 or 7 B.C., because our Gregorian calendars are 6 or 7 years off. Um, but he inaugurates the kingdom. And then I put in there, finally, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Uh, between 66 and 70 A.D., uh, Rome attacked uh, Jerusalem and ransacked it and kicked the Jews out of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and then brought an end to the sacrificial system because that all had to take place in the temple. And most scholars regard that as being sort of the, the end point of the Old Covenant or the First Covenant. Um, it, it overlaps with the, the New Covenant for a little bit, but that's kind of the end of it because sacrifices were a central part of the Old Covenant and now they can't be made. So that's kind of just a big overview of this. 
The prophets that we're talking about today, they were active with the kingdom divided. Uh, there, was, there were prophets before then, but it's only when the kingdom divides that they begin to play a more prominent role. And especially as both the northern kingdom and then later on the southern kingdom are headed for destruction and captivity and all that, these prophets are just giving warnings. They're sounding out the alarms. Disaster is coming. Their basic message is, if disaster is coming unless we change right now. Uh, the way that we're living is now, the message is, that if you keep covenant with God, God will look over you, but if you don't keep covenant with God, all bets are off and you're on your own and things are going to go bad. Well, the prophets are saying, we're not keeping covenant with God, and so we're headed for destruction. Things have got to change or we're doomed. And they ended up being doomed. Uh, they both, both were taken captive. Um, it's important to note that there's a difference when you hear the word prophet. I, I don't know what comes to your mind, but a lot of people, what comes to their mind is they think it's somebody who's, who's about foretelling the future. Um, Hebrew prophecy rarely is about that, once in a while. But on the whole, it's not. People confuse Hebrew prophecy with Greek prophecy. Now, the ancient Greeks, they were into the occult. They were into divination. They, they, were trying. they believed the future was all settled already. They were fatalists. It's all settled. Que sera, sera, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But they would want to kind of find out what's going to happen. And so they had all these different means of trying to do that. Like some people today, like check out horoscopes or read tea leaves, whatever. They would cut open animals, and depending on how the, the way the guts fell, that would tell them something about the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they had the Oracle of Delphi and all these different ways of doing that. So in, in ancient Greek, prophecy is this occult activity of, pre, uh, of predicting the future. They're telling you what's going to happen, and you can't do anything about it. A lot of Greek tragedies about this. Knowing that something's going to happen, but no matter what you do, you just play into it. That's fatalism. Hebrew prophets were different. Their prophecy was a warning. And they weren't saying this is going to happen. They're saying if you don't change, this is going to happen. This is the road we're on. But whereas in Greek they gave the prophecy with a sense of fate and doom, ancient Hebrews gave prophecies with a sense of hope. Like, will you change? It's a warning. And they're hoping they can alter the future. So in ancient Greeks, they had the, the idea that the future is in unalter unalterably settled. It's just fate. But in uh, the Hebrews, the, their, their idea of prophecy presupposes that the future is alterable, and they're trying to change it. Uh, read Jeremiah 18 if you want to find out more about that, because the Lord there says, whenever I make a prophecy, I can change my mind if I want to. If you'll change, I'll change. So there's flexibility built into this. So there's two points I want to make here with the, the, these prophets. Um, first, I want to talk about one dominant theme that we find running throughout the prophets. It's a common denominator. Uh, it has to do with... With, with their concept of righteousness. I'll talk about that. And then the second half, or like the last third, will be about this valley of dry bones. Um, what, what the meaning of that, and what it says about the old covenant and the new covenant. So first of all, righteousness. A theme running throughout the prophets. Uh, the biblical concept of righteousness, a lot of times today when people think about righteousness, they think of a person who's personally holy and, a, and does good things and stays away from bad things. And you know, you don't, Drink, smoke, or chew, or go with boys who do, or whatever your rules are. Um, but the biblical concept of righteousness, it, it, it's, it's about right-relatedness. It's not so much about the individual quality as it is about a communal quality. You're rightly related to God, to other people, to yourself, and to the earth and the animal kingdom. That's, that's God's concept of shalom, wholeness, right-relatedness. So righteousness means right-relatedness. And here's what's interesting. In the prophets, and you find this elsewhere in the Bible— but there is a, a special strong emphasis on being rightly related to people who are vulnerable. 
Uh, and, and that's called justice. And so much hangs in this. Uh, you find throughout the prophets this strong call, especially to, be, to take care of foreigners. It seems kind of relevant today. Uh, immigrants. All right, so for example, listen to this. Here, here's Ezekiel 47, 21 through 23. Lord tells Ezekiel, you are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes of Israel, so divide it up in 12, 12 sections. You are to allot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the foreigners residing among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. These are just people who, for whatever reasons, are struggling along. They didn't fit where they were at, whatever, so they just kind of joined this nomadic tribe, and they're just kind of hanging out with them. And uh, the Lord says, treat them as one of your own, as a native-born Israelite. Uh, Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe a foreigner resides, there you are to give them their inheritance, declares the Lord. Now, there's a policy for you. Um, Here's the thing that makes this so remarkable is that, that throughout the ancient Near East, which is the environment in which Israel lives, everybody, almost everybody, there's one exception that I know of, but they, they, their word for human being is themselves. Like if you're Egyptian, the way you refer to a human being is Egyptian. Everybody else was seen as being something else, a less than. In fact, in the case of Egypt, they not only saw other human beings as not full human beings, but they saw, thought other human beings were, were evil. There's something, so the, the Egyptians were not only the humans, but they were the good humans, and, and everyone else was sort of evil, which is why they felt totally justified conquering them, and their hope was that they take over the world, but why shouldn't they, because they're the good guys and everyone else is bad, and I'm glad it didn't work, but that was their idea, all right? So to, in that environment, to have someone come along and say, that foreigner, that non-Israelite, everyone else regards other people who aren't like them as being less than, but you regard them as being a natural-born Israelite. Treat them as one of your own. They have the same exact rights as you have. Wild concept. A straggle-along who just joined the nomadic tribe yesterday gets to have an inheritance in the land. <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, now, it, yeah, it, 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 goes, it goes on and on and on. Uh, some of the strongest warnings are, are, are about those, against those, who aren't treating the foreigner and other vulnerable people with, with, with dignity, with justice. So, for example, Isaiah 10 says this. Lord makes this decree. Woe to the nations who have unjust laws, to those who, who uh, issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. That's not a new invention, apparently. It's been going on for quite a while. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? What Isaiah is saying there is that when you have a society that has this unjust hierarchy, and most societies do, uh, there are people at the top and the people at the bottom. And when the people at the top who have all the power and privileges, they make rules that oppress the people at the bottom, they exploit the people at the bottom, uh, that kind of society is on its way towards destruction. It's not that God's holding a thunderbolt going to zap them. It's rather built into the nature of things that, that, that when there is injustice, when people are not being rightly related and being oppressed, you are on your way to destruction. That kind of thing leads to the erosion of society, and that is what happened with Israel. Uh, in Ezekiel, we read this. It says, uh, The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. Now, you deny the foreigner justice. How? By refusing to treat them as one of your own. 
To be rightly related to them is to treat them as an Israelite. If you're not doing that, you're, you're, you're not treating them justly. And uh, um, yeah, it's, 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 in fact, God, the passage presupposes that for God, not treating the foreigner justly or not treating those who are vulnerable justly is on the same level as extortion and robbery. He just said it. So this is serious stuff. God, God obviously puts a big valuation on, on, on treating vulnerable people uh, uh, fairly and, and, and justly. Uh, another one is Ezekiel 16. Here, the Lord compares Israel to Sodom. Sodom of the famous Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, township, all right? But listen to what he says about Sodom. Because probably a lot of you, when you think of Sodom, you think of something else. Listen to what Ezekiel says. He says, where did he say it? Come on, where are you? Here he is. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. Now, they also were violently inhospitable. We read about that in Genesis 19. But that's not what, 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 what catches Ezekiel's eye. Ezekiel, is he's thinking about Sodom, and the Lord's here communicating through him. He's saying their sin was that they were arrogant, and they were overfed, and they didn't care about the, the poor and the needy. They had more food than they needed, and they wouldn't share with the people who didn't have enough food. And that's the kind of thing that makes God very irate. Uh, that is unjust. <laughs> that, that is, in fact, the very definition of greed is that you have more than you need, and you hoard it when there are people who have less than they need. You don't share. Uh, folks, this is the number one reason. Study the Bible, follow judgments, and ask, why does God ever bring judgment on a nation? And the number one reason given is this. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about the needy, the vulnerable, the foreigner. This is why nations fall under judgment. Now, somebody out there, I guarantee you right now, maybe not in the South Church, maybe it's out there in TV land. Hello, pod listeners. We love you guys. One of you is thinking this thought, though. <laughs> maybe a lot of them are. But okay, at this point, he's going to announce judgments coming on America. And he's tipping his liberal hand. There's Boyd giving us, tipping his old liberal politics here. Okay, yeah, we get you, we get you. He's saying, weigh in with the Democrats. That's what he's saying. He's saying, we want open borders. We ought to have open borders. We ought to welcome everybody. We ought to just love everybody. Consider everybody an American because they showed up. Ali, Ali, and free. Doesn't matter. You can be carrying a bomb with a detonator shouting Allah Akbar. Boyd thinks you should come into America. <laughs> Somebody's thinking that thought right now. And I just saved myself a lot of emails by mentioning it. <laughs> Look, at, look, at, here's the thing. Um, if, if you're suspicious of that, and whenever I talk about any topic that has anything to do with anything that's on television, I'll get this response. Oh, so you're weighing in. If you think that about this, I want to encourage you to consider the possibility that you're watching too much news. Your brain's been politicized, been taken over, MSNBC or Fox, or whatever your version is. And, and so you start to think in political categories. And when someone mentions immigration, boom, up come the political categories. And now the only question is, which side does he weigh in on? Oh, he said we should welcome strangers as our own. Boom, he's a Democrat. Wrong. Oh, well, I don't, it's none of your business what I am. But <laughs> look at, here's the thing. You know, that is a word worth taking. I mean, that says something. I, I, what to do with that, I don't know. But it, it says something. 
But the thing is, I am not smart enough to run a country, and I don't get paid enough to run a country. It's hard enough running a church, for crying out loud. I don't know all the solutions to how thick should borders be, how poor should borders be, how much should we let in, what's the qualification. Blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Hey, you know, there are PhDs in Homeland Security who disagree on this stuff, so it's not like all that simple. I think everyone agrees that what we're doing right now isn't working terribly well. Can we get an amen on that? And, and, and I heard one commentary. I think this is a common sentiment. This uh, commentator said this. He goes, you know what? Right now, the Democrats and the Republicans in the White House are like two divorced spouses arguing with each other over whose fault it is that their son is drowning in a lake while their son is drowning in the lake. It's like... It's your fault. No, it's your fault. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, you're a cocky face. No, you're a poopy face. No, you're a beggar. Shut up and do your job, right? That's why we got him in there. Get something done. First work together, solve the problem, and then argue about whose fault it was. It's just people are hurting, and in the meantime, all we're doing is bickering, bickering, bickering. But the thing is this. I, I, it's above my pay grade to try to solve world problems. But what I do know is this. If, if, if caring for vulnerable people the immigrant, the widow, the foreigner. Uh, if caring for, for vulnerable people is one of the ne- number of reasons why God gets ticked off at nations, that should at least tell us that this is a high, high priority on God's priority list. It's at the very, very top. And if caring for the vulnerable and the oppressed and the outsider and the weak and the needy, the hungry, if caring for them is a top priority of God, then it's got to be a top priority of ours. Would you say amen to that? Amen. amen. It's our job to reflect God's values. If it's important to God, it's got to be important to us. Now, I'm not surprised that America doesn't do a good job at that. I don't don't think any country does a good job at this. I don't really expect countries to do good jobs at this because this world is oppressed. It's spiritually oppressed. But I would hope, well, I'm not surprised that America doesn't do a good job at this. It probably does better than most countries. But but I would think at least the American church would want to reflect God's priority on caring for the vulnerable. Amen. Amen. But there's not much evidence of that. It's not like we're generally known, Christians are generally known as, oh, those people who just sacrifice for the needy and the poor and the oppressed, and they go out of the way to welcome the immigrant, you know, uh, that, that's those Christian churches for you. Not, you. You don't get that. On the whole, it seems like it's pretty much off of most churches' radar screens. There are some wonderful ex- exceptions to this. I mean, as this movement is growing throughout the globe, uh, man, people are doing church in different ways, and some of it is just beautiful. But on the whole, the traditional church It doesn't seem to be a real high priority for them. Most people, including most Christians, in America at least, they think it's the government's job to do all this. Governments should be the ones that care for the poor and uh, find housing for the homeless and and welcoming the immigrants or however they want to solve those issues. That's the government's job. The church's job is to save souls. If I hear that one more time, even if I'm the one saying it, I'm going to barf. To say that that's a truncated gospel is a massive understatement. You see, here's the thing. Jesus tells us that, you know, thank God whatever government does. It's good to have a compassionate government if you can find one. Good luck on that. But, but it's good that government does whatever it can do. But Jesus says that that's our responsibility, the responsibility of his disciples, his followers, you and me. Because, see, the good news, we're called to manifest good news. And good news is only good if it applies to the whole person. Uh, if you're going to have good news that's really good news, it can't be just good for the soul. It's also got to be good news about food for a hungry stomach and good news for a place to live when you're on the street and good news for protection for your kids when you don't have any protection. It's got to be good news for an opportunity for your kid to get out of the gang and, and get their life rehabilitated. It's got to be good news to help people get off of drugs. It's got to be good news to help people who are lonely get into a community and be welcomed without any questions asked. doesn't matter what your background is. You may be rejected by every other community, but this one, is going to say hello to you and embrace you. It's, 
God loves the whole person and the gospel is good news to the whole person. And so their eating matters, their living matters, their clothing matters, their schooling matters. And we are called to be a people who take responsibility for that. That's why we got all the stuff we got going on around here. <sighs> we don't default to government. Thank God what it does. But in fact, folks, Jesus personally identifies with the vulnerable. Personally. And this is the only category of people that he does this with. So in Matthew 25, the judgment scene. And Jesus says there that, that there'll be sheep and there'll be goats, right? And, and the thing that distinguishes them is this, that the sheep who are God's people, they reflect God's heart. And Jesus says, you reflected it because when I was in prison, you visited me. And when I was sick, you took care of me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was on the street, you welcomed me in. Your character is the character of my father welcome into his house. And this becomes the criteria that separates the sheep from the goats. The goats look a little bit like sheep, but they don't have the character of sheep. And you know that, Jesus says, because you didn't visit me when I was in prison, didn't feed me when I was hungry, and so on and so on. This becomes the criteria. So folks, would you agree with me that this is a pretty important topic that we're talking about right here? Uh, Jesus personally involves himself in it. It is that high of a priority to him. So you think, wouldn't you, that if, if, if the church's job is to reflect the priorities of God, the values of God, and... Caring about the vulnerable is a top priority of God's. Wouldn't you expect that to be reflected in churches? Wouldn't you expect it to be reflected in our budgets, for example? Because we want to know what you really value, you got to follow your money. Don't follow your brain. You tell yourself all sorts of silly things that you think you believe. But follow the money. That's what you really value, okay? So it is with churches. What do you really value? Follow the money. And if this is a high priority, you think that the budget would reflect that. But I don't think it very often does. Um... There's no indication that that's really high priority. You know, a, a number of years ago, I've given up trying to remember how many years have passed since the latest event I want to talk about, but it's over 20 for sure. But we were, we were at a stage where we were getting tired of hopping around from school to school, right, as a church. And so we wanted to have a permanent place. And we considered a lot of options. We we're praying and exploring. And one option was to possibly build our own building. So there's a company that builds churches. That's all they do. And they wanted to get our business. So they took us around. Uh, they wanted to show us some of the churches they built. I went to the first one, and that was it. Um, they took me to this church, uh, us and, and our staff, to this church where, uh, it, okay, it was a word faith church, and, and part of the word faith movement is that they believe that, that opulence and abundance is a sign of being blessed. Uh, kind of still an old covenant kind of thinking going on there. But so this church was very opulent. It was, had a lot of abundance. And the guy who was the head of the company thought he was selling me on it by pointing out all this abundance. So he brought me into the pastor's office, which was huge. The senior pastor's office was unbelievable. His closet, I'm not exaggerating. Ask anyone who was on the team with me. His closet is bigger than my office. Uh, his, 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 he has a walk-in closet with a wardrobe. You know, he's got like all these suits and stuff and nice shoes and whatever. Uh, it's bigger than my office, and I share my office with four people, all right? Uh, it, it was incredible. And the guy was going on about how uh, uh, the oak from the uh, desk here and the shelves are, it's, it's, it's imported cherry oak from Amazon. It's very rare, very rare, expensive indeed. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's for refined taste. And putting on this carpet and all this stuff, all this. And they have this $35 million building, uh, which is very, very nice. Uh, trouble is it sits empty for six nights out of the week. And uh, in a 10-mile radius of this church, there's a, there was, anyways, back then, a, a, a homeless uh, community, a tense community that was within, uh, these people don't have any place to sleep at night. And, and there's all sorts of needs in their community. There's folks who are on drugs. There's poverty everywhere. All sorts of things that you could do with a lot of that money. 
And it just got me thinking, and I'm not trying to judge that church. I, I, you know, that's not my business. But I have to ask the question, does this really reflect God's priority? Is God more into cherry oak wood imported from the Amazon or finding people a place to sleep in January where they don't have to freeze? I'm kind of thinking, I'm just guessing here, that probably it's on the people who are, 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 are freezing. You see, the prophets force us to ask these kind of questions. What are we really doing? What, what, what are we really about? What, what really are our priorities? Um, this is one of the things I love about this tiny home project that we talked about earlier. Okay, here's a little backstory in case you don't know. Uh, this lady named Gabriel, I don't even know her last name, but she's a wonderful lady. Uh, she works at the U of M and is in a study on homelessness looking for solutions. And she figured out uh, that for a quarter of the cost it presently takes to get people off the street, you could get them in the tiny homes. These 100 to 200 square foot homes. And uh, we've got a demo uh, right alongside the building. I encourage you to check it out. And her idea was this then. But the, the problem is that the main, the main issue of homelessness is in the cities. And cities all have ordinances against tiny homes. I, I, my son wanted to get a tiny home, and I looked into all of them, and there's only one place in the whole Twin Cities where you can actually put a, a tiny home. And that has all sorts of restrictions in it. So what do you do with this? Well, she had this idea. What, what would happen if churches, if we got churches to have buy-in on this? And they opened up a little bit of their property, maybe a parking lot, maybe some other property, and, and would house these tiny homes. And then they, what if churches would come around these tiny home villages, have a, a village of five or ten, and come around this community and welcome them in? and help them kind of get situated, which is very important. All specialists on homelessness will tell you that, that a good portion of folks on, on the street have mental disorders, and if they don't have a community around them, they're going to keep on lapsing back into poverty. We want to break that cycle of poverty. It's a brilliant solution. And so she knew that we had all these partnerships going on here. We partner with the food shelf and all sorts of things. And so she thought, well, maybe Woodland would be a church that would, would, would volunteer to be a prototype of this. And so she called me up, and I said, you think? Uh, we'd love to. And so, so now we're, we're building this. Get out of my way. <laughs> Stupid thing. How, how many times are we going to bump that before I actually would move it? I mean, it's just, I kept on bumping. <laughs> ADD moment. So my, my wife used to play this game with me all the time where she'd buy something new and ask me, to, do I notice it? Uh, and I never do. And so one time, we, were, we didn't have a chandelier in this new house we moved into. And so she bought the chandelier, but it hung down too low. And, and I, but her friend and her wanted to have a contest to see how long would it take before I noticed the chandelier. <laughs> three days, I bumped my head on it three times, and I still didn't notice that it was a new chandelier. <laughs> I said, who lowered the chandelier? <laughs> we didn't have a chandelier, you idiot. <sighs> I'll tell you. Where was I? Where was I? What was I talking about? Uh, oh, tiny homes. Yes, yes, yes. So, so uh, Gabriel... Uh, whose last name I don't know. And I want to have her preach here one time because, man, that lady, when she starts talking about homelessness, this passion comes out in her and it's so beautiful. And it's just, it's so inspiring. So she calls us up and we said, sure, we'd love to do it. And, and so the idea is, is to have a, a prototype here just to kind of start the ball rolling and to kind of plan it into imaginations. Her actual dream is when she walked into our, we have 70,000 square feet of unused space over there. And when she came over here to check out the building and she saw that, that unused space, she starts bawling. Because he's had this dream of having a space like this that could be used to manufacture uh, tiny homes and get the people who are in the tiny homes living on our property to be working in the place that builds tiny homes to ship them out to other churches so that this thing could be, start spreading. And it would be so beautiful. I don't know where it's going to go. You know, it, the future is open. Eh, who knows? But, but I'll tell you this. It, it has the potential. This is what I love about it. It has the potential. If this catches on. If we had even 10% of churches within uh, uh, urban areas offering up some space for these tiny home villages and doing this, 
the church would finally be known as doing something about poverty and homelessness. Wouldn't that be a great change? <laughs> like, woo! Uh, it's, it's got a lot of potential, folks. It's, 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 it's kingdom. But see, here's the thing. Everything in the kingdom involves sacrifice, right? The kingdom begins with your first drop of blood. The kingdom begins with your first inconvenience. Uh, when your life is different because you're a follower of Jesus, that's where the kingdom begins. And so this costs money. Uh, we had to raise $25,000 last year to build this prototype. Um, and if this takes off, I can promise you I'm going to be coming back and asking for more. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, I know you're going to give it. Uh, you, you guys always do. It's, it, it amazes me. Now, you wait till the last minute, which I would rather you not do. <laughs> you guys have aged me a little bit. <laughs> last minute. But you come through. You know, it's like you put the vision out there, and we developed a heart for this kind of thing. We go, yes, I bet we could raise a million dollars pretty quick if we put this out there, give a vision like this. Some of you are saying, oh, no way. Well, you wait. Write this day down. We're going to come back to this. You wait. At least a half million. We'll, we'll see. But it takes money. It also takes work. It takes sacrifice. I come here every Monday to check on the progress of the home, and there's always like three, four, five, six guys who are working there. The same guys. They build stuff, and they like to do that, and so they're building that. Um, I mean, like David Unger, he, this last Monday, it was 90 degrees. He's working on the inside of this tiny home, which is about 120 degrees, fixing the wiring or whatever, and he's just drenched in sweat. And Brandon Overholt, he's always there building something, and, and this guy... He, he repairs homes for a living, right? And so summers are pretty important in Minnesota if you're working on homes. He's got five kids to feed, yet he somehow manages to take one day out of the week and donate it here, building a home for somebody he doesn't even know. Maybe we'll never know, but that's the kingdom. That is the kingdom. We love you, Brandon. But he does know who he's building it for, really, because he's building it for Jesus, because Jesus personally identifies with the homeless and the poor and the marginalized and the rest. Building a home for Jesus, what could be a greater honor? Uh, folks, this is what we're called to do. Um, this isn't an addendum to the gospel, a secondary thing of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel, uh, to minister to the whole person, everything about the person, meet all their needs. Okay, secondly, I want to talk about the dry bones vision that he had, a very strange vision Ezekiel had. We talked about it uh, in the skit before the, the sermon. I can't help it, but each time I've heard that, See, this is how TV jays you. I, I keep on thinking, oh, so that's how the army of the dead was born. The army of the undead. See, with all skeletons coming together, the flesh coming together, I just get a picture of falling. That's not what Ezekiel intended. So get that picture out of your mind. I only mentioned it to make sure that you don't have it. All right, so. See, the, the prophets sometimes, Ezekiel and Jeremiah in particular, once in a while, they were able to kind of see into the future a little bit. And, and, and they, they got an intuition that God was going to do something very, very different in the future, which gave them an awareness that there's something defective about what's going on now. If God's going to do a radically new thing in the future, so there's something wrong about what's going on now. Um, the dry bones here, so the, the, way, the way it plays out, I don't want to read it because we just watched it. And so I, you got the story. But so the Lord tells Ezekiel that he's supposed to prophesy to these dry bones. And he speaks life into these dry bones. And as he's speaking this life, the dry bones, the bones start to connect themselves, they form skeletons, and then they form organs and tissue, and then skin on it, and, and then you got an army. And Ezekiel didn't know this, but the reason it's an army is because this is the group of people that are going to be fighting the principalities and power, powers, doing spiritual warfare, uh, not fighting flesh and blood. The bones here represent the spiritual deadness of Israel, and they're completely dead. And they, he paints a picture where there's no hope of 
a human being ever coming out of this unless God breathes life into it. Spirit, Israel was in a state of total spiritual decay. And it's clear that if God doesn't breathe life into these bones, they're not going to resurrect themselves. Now see, here's the thing. The Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of law, with those 613 laws, that covenant that promised blessing if you obey, but cursing if you don't, that covenant had brought them to this, to a state of total spiritual deadness. And now they're on the verge of being taken captive, north and south, because they've been bringing covenant with God. So the, 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 the covenant that promised blessings if you obey, but cursings if you don't, turned out to be mostly cursings. That's what Israel was suffering under, and they're dead. Now Paul looks at that, in the light of the revelation of God in Christ, and Paul sees that Israel didn't just happen to not fulfill the law. Like, like there could have been other people that would have fulfilled it. These guys are just extra bad. No, it wasn't that at all. Paul saw that there's something inevitable about the law that leads to failure. You can't keep the law. And in fact, Paul goes so far as to say that the law was given for that purpose, to show that you can't keep it. At least that's one of the functions of the law. It's like God had to prove to us that we can't save ourselves in order that we finally get in the right position where we could ask God to save us. All right? And so the law is a way of convincing us that we can't save ourselves. Here's what he says in Galatians chapter 3. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. That's the faith in Jesus. So there's a kind of a prison that he's painting us here. The law was a kind of prison. So the law was our guardian. He uses this word pedagogus. Until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. All right, you, 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 you get what I'm saying. Um, so, so get this. A guardian, a pedagogos in the ancient Roman world, was usually your most trusted servant. And you put him in charge of your boys. You don't put him in charge of the girls, because girls didn't get educated back in ancient Rome, not usually. But the boys did, so the pedagogos was a guardian of the boys. And the job was, this guardian was with these boys all the time. Usually they weren't allowed to go out of the house without their pedagogus, uh, their guardian. They were constrained by, confined by this, this pedagogus. And the job of this pedagogus, this teacher, this guardian, was to lead these children, teach them on the ways of proper manners, high society, morals, and education. And in doing that, you lead them to adulthood. The job of the pedagogus ended when the, uh, usually when the son was 13, and that was when they were considered to be an adult. So you lead, you lead, do what you need to do in order to lead them to this position. So also, Paul is saying that the law, humanity was constrained under the law to lead us to Christ. And the way that this pedagogus works, leading us to Christ, is by showing us the impossibility of living in accordance with the law. You can't do it. Paul says that, that while, while the law is good in and of itself, we are dead. And when you give a law to a dead person, the dead person can't possibly comply with it, which means the only function the law would have is to expose how dead you are. You can't live up to it. And, and Paul, in the Old Testament, a lot of folks thought the law could save them. They celebrate the law as a way of being saved. But Paul looks back and he sees something totally different. The law is given not to show us how we can be rightly related to God, but to show us how we can't be rightly related to God. And it shows us how we can't be rightly related to God in order to show us how we can be rightly related to God. And the only way to be rightly related to God is through Jesus Christ and faith. Amen? Amen. So, so here's what I want us to see. Two, two things I want us to see here very quickly, and I've got eight minutes to do it, so I've got to stop talking slow and speed up a little bit. So here's the thing. Uh, pause. So here's the thing. If, okay, Hebrews 8 tells us this, that, that, that when the prophets spoke about a new covenant, they were already revealing that, the, that there's something obsolete about the first covenant. Hebrews 8, 13. 
Um, and what is obsolete is now passing away. So follow this. If it's the case that the law was given as an accommodation, not reflecting God's ideal will, and that's absolutely the case, it's given as an accommodation, it's given at a as a pedagogist to lead us to Christ, uh, and it's, but it's now obsolete because we've been brought to Christ. Uh, the author of Hebrews says it's, uh, the law was a shadow that leads to the reality, which is Christ. But once you have the reality, you don't need the shadow. You're not going to learn a thing about me by looking at my shadow. Uh, looking at me, you learn all there is to know about me. My shadow won't add it to that. So also, the reality is Christ, right? Now, if the law is provisional, accommodation, and obsolete, that means that the conception of God as a lawgiver is conditional, uh, is, is, is uh, uh, pedagogus, is, 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 is uh, obsolete. Because you can't conceive of the law without conceiving of God as the lawgiver. I shared last week that whenever God takes on a new covenant in response to a new rebellion, God takes on a role, right? His people want to see him this way, so God, since he's not going to coerce them to think differently, God says, okay, I'll work with that. Um, but that means then, folks, that with you, if you want to find out what God's really like, don't go looking to the law-giving God. That's an accommodation. Uh, that's now obsolete. That was there for a purpose. The law was there to lead us to Christ, pedagogus. Well, so also the conception of God as a lawgiver is there to lead us to Christ. But now that you have Christ, you're not going to learn anything about what God's really like by looking at the lawgiver. That's like trying to learn something about me by looking at my shadow. It's a shadow. It's not reality. You got the reality. Stop lusting after the shadow. Okay? And all that is, it brings us back to this. I mentioned before that we're going to have some foundational things we're going to cover in this series. This leads to one of the most foundational convictions we have here at Woodlands Church, and that is if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? Don't look anywhere else to know what God is like other than Jesus Christ. There's all this accommodation leading up to Christ, but that's accommodation. If you want to know what God's really like, they got glimpses of the truth, it says in, in the Old Testament. Hebrews 1, 3 says, they got glimpses. And there's only one word of God, and that's Jesus. So insofar as they were seeing the truth, they were seeing Jesus. It's just that there's a lot of clouds in the way back then. A lot of cultural conditioning, a lot of, lot, lot, lot of, lot of stuff. It was cloudy. We only got peekaboos, but we have the sun on a cloudless day, praise God. This is exactly what God is like. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Second thing I want to bring out of this is just this. Um, the law is all about trying to find life on your own. You're trying to get right with God by your behavior. You're going to work your way into it. The new covenant that's revealed in Ezekiel 37 is radically different than that. Because, as I mentioned earlier, these bones have no hope of living unless God breathes life into them. And so, whereas the first covenant was based all on human effort, the second covenant is based on, actually, the opposite of effort. It's based on rest. Um, if you want to have true life, what we learn in the new covenant is if you want to have true life, you've got to receive it as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't work your way up to it. You can't achieve it. You've got to receive it as a gift. You've got to receive it by grace. Which means if you want to find life, you've got to admit that apart from grace, you are dead bones. You're dried up. You're not going to get yourself right with God. And then it means that you put yourself in a position where you accept, you receive. You trust that God really is this beautiful, and you just accept it. The only way to find fullness of life is to die to that old achieving self, working self, merit self, and accept this grace self where you are at the mercy of God, you say, Lord, you got to breathe life into me or I'm dead. If you, God, if you don't work the miracle of your spirit inside of me, I'm dead bones. But it means then, folks, that we've got to carve out time to let God breathe into us. You see, 
The first covenant was based, the first covenant was effort, but here we find that it's, it's, it's anchored in rest. But for some, of the, for, for some of us, that's the hardest thing to do. Because we're so used to being just achieving and busy and do. At the center of the kingdom, the foundation of everything is us resting in God's love. Trusting in God's love, accepting God's love, and letting him breathe life into us. We all need to make time, carve out time, where you are just being with God. The real you, being with the real God. And that is so important because God didn't save you because he thought you were going to be so good at witnessing or such a good deacon or such a good this, whatever. He loves you. He wants to hang out with you. It's just like you, when you get married, it's not because you think your wife or husband's going to be a good bill payer, 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 though hopefully they will be. But you don't marry them for that. You marry them because you like being with them more than you like to be away from them, at least for the first year of your marriage. So <laughs> hopefully <laughs> you like to hang out with them, right? And, 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 and so... But see, you've got to spend time doing that. It can happen when you get married and you love each other, you want to hang out together, but if you're not careful, you find yourself, all you're doing is you're, little, you're friends with benefits, right? You're, you're paying bills, you're raising kids, you're whatever. But you, the reason you got married, you're not doing. It's the same thing in our relationship with God, folks. Uh, he wants to hang out with us for eternity. Amen. We've got to start practicing now. And, and it, it, for most people, you've got to carve it into your schedule. If, you, if it's not carved into your schedule, it probably won't happen. I mean, the, I don't want, I find that my life is like, it, it, it abhors a black hole. Whenever there's any space available, something comes in and squish it out. Whenever I get done with a book, I'm shocked a week later that I ever had time to write a book. It just gets filled up. Carve out time. And so I'll end with this. I encourage all of us. See, here's the thing. Um, I might not close with this, but I only have one minute, so I better close with it. <laughs> Christians have always debated uh, about piety. Some people think that personal piety, devotion, is really important. Others think that social activism is really important. Well, see, in the New Testament, there are two sides of the same coin. Um, we need to have a personal time with Jesus where we're just sitting in his presence and letting him love on us, and you use your imagination and let the Spirit work there. Let him breathe life into you, breathe hope into you, breathe refreshment into you, breathe worth into you. And see, out of the fullness of that comes everything that we do for the kingdom. Uh, this is the fuel that the kingdom runs on. It's when you know that you're loved and you experience that love. You don't just know it theoretically, but you're sitting there and you, you, you experience Jesus loving you and breathing worth into you. That's what gives you life. You're made for that. You need that. And out of the fullness of that, you start caring about vulnerable people. You start wanting to sacrifice for others. You start taking on the character of the Father. You're being transformed from the inside out. Did you notice in Ezekiel's vision that the transformation is from the inside out. It starts with the bones, then comes the sinews and the muscles, finally the skin and the clothing. God changes from the inside out. The love does that. Uh, you know, if, if, if your motivation has always been external, law, threat, something like that, you ought to do, you should do, you got to do, then when you hear about God just loving you, some people think, oh, there's that liberal boy again. He's, he's, he's poo-hooing sin. God doesn't, he just loves you, doesn't care about sin. And if you think I'm saying that, you're listening to too much Christian radio or something. I don't know. Because, you know, folks, if you, someone who thinks that way, it just has never, has never experienced the motivation of love. It's the strongest force in the universe. If it gets on the inside, it can make you do crazy things. It's a far better motivator than ought or should or gotta do or better do or you're gonna go to hell if you don't. No, this is, you're loved up front. You're giving all this up front. Just live it out because it's already yours, praise God. And that, 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 that motivation changes everything. That's the kind of thing that makes people sacrifice a great deal to put people in tiny homes so they won't be out on the street. Uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, all of us need to be 
having quality time with God, using your imagination. I have a book out there called Seeing is Believing, if you want to help on, on, on how to use your imagination in prayer and how that makes it so powerful. But I, we all need to be fueling up because we together are called to do some great things. I really believe God's got, he's done some great things. We've caused quite a splash already, but I have, I honestly, I, I have a sense of we're just getting warmed up. We're just getting started. I don't know where this movement's going to go, but we have a role to play in this thing, and it's really, really exciting. It's a, it's a thing that keeps me you know, excited at night, can't get to sleep because the brain's turning. Uh, but you guys, I, I, it, it all depends on all of us doing our part, playing our role. Maybe you're a worker, maybe you sacrifice your money, time in other areas, but we're all called to play our role. Out of the fullness we have with Christ, overflow towards others. Would you stand? Uh, I'd like to call the prayer teams to come up here. And by the way, we do need more people on our prayer team, so please consider joining that. Uh, call Rob if, if you're open to that. But if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, please come forward and these folks would love to minister to you. And I'm soaking wet again, aren't I? I tell you. I'm just a sweat hog. But you love it, don't you? Come on. Love me. So what if I'm sweaty? You'll still give me hugs. Uh, and if you're here this morning and you're not a devoted follower of Jesus, but something in you is saying you should check that out, you should check that out. And come up here and these folks would love to explain to you what is involved in doing that. So Woodland Hills, as we leave this place, can we do it as the people that are committed to getting fueled up, having quality time with Jesus in order to overflow in love and service to the world? If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. God bless you guys. See ya.